Hello and welcome along to the latest edition of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as usual by Dieter Renken, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. Dieter, welcome to the show. Now, we usually speak immediately after a Grand Prix, but we've got an extra podcast this week where we're going to be talking about money. Specifically, the financials involved in Formula One, the prize pot that is distributed between each of the teams and the cost cap that each team now has to abide by. Now, F1's new Concord Agreement came into force in 2021, and this has changed the sports financial landscape somewhat. So, with apologies to our listeners for the sound quality in some places, Dieter, from your hotel room in Dubai, if you wouldn't mind explaining to us exactly what has changed from a financial point of view. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yes, um, I, I think that the timing of this podcast is absolutely superb in terms of it being the finale and therefore you know this is really where it counts financially for the teams because of course the price structure is based on your classification in the constructors championship and as we know there's some pretty tight fights i mean mercedes ferrari um going neck and neck for second place in the championship further down we have mclaren and we have alpine uh, fighting over fourth place, uh, we have uh, Aston Martin and Alfa Romeo. And of course, uh, the higher up the championship you are, the more money you earn. And this is exactly what we'll be addressing. But back to your original question, Michael, about how much has changed, very simply, an enormous amount. What we had previously was we had an inequitable uh, revenue structure, which was that inequitable that two of the teams actually took it to the EU. It didn't get that far because um, Liberty had taken over the commercial rights and there was a sort of a settlement, but fundamentally there was a lot of unhappiness to the degree that the teams that were not favoured by special bonuses, every one of them either changed hands or actually went out of business during the course of the previous Concord Agreement, which ran from 2013 to 2020. Now, that one paid what they call a Constructors' Championship bonus to your top teams, so Ferrari, uh, Mercedes, uh, Red Bull, uh, Williams got a heritage payment, McLaren got, got CCB money, and this then meant, and of course there was no cost cap back then, which meant that the more money you got, the more you could spend on performance, which is why none of the non-favoured teams actually won a Grand Prix until we had that peculiar 2020 season when you know, we had Pierre Gasly winning and in, in, in Monza, etc. But before that, only the favoured CCB teams had actually won, or in most cases, been on the podium. That proves how inequitable it was. <clears throat> Liberty Media, when they took over, realized that this uh, situation could not continue because effectively it meant you had a a grid in two halves. And therefore, they set about uh, leveling the the financial playing field. And the new Concord Agreement makes an enormous difference to this uh, in that, first of all, the, the difference between the top teams and the lower teams is actually closed down. Uh, But apart from that, uh, the championship bonuses, for example, have been diluted, so to speak. Um, And what we'll do is we'll go through some of the sort of figures. But fundamentally, um, uh, Ferrari had previously picked up about $200 million for for winning the championship or coming second or third. Whereas a team at the lower end got about 35 to 40 million. Where the inequality came into it was that if a team like Force India, as it was then, finished fourth and Ferrari finished fifth, 
Ferrari still got hundreds in bonuses, whereas Force India, for its fourth place, beating Ferrari, would get about 50 or 60 million. And of course, this was a major, major issue. Yeah, you talked about uh, Ferrari there. For several years, a lot has been made of the, the sort of historical bonus that Ferrari received, uh, simply almost simply just for taking part in the sport and having been part of Formula One for so long. Obviously, that's been a very controversial arrangement. A lot of other teams have uh, had a lot to say about that. Does, does this still exist in some form uh, in the new Concord Agreement? <laughs> yes, it does, because Ferrari is a historic team, and obviously they're a draw card. It's a bit like having a, you know, a grade A listed actor in a Hollywood movie. Obviously, he's going to attract the audiences. So because of that, the other teams have agreed that Ferrari should get some form of a bonus. The big difference, of course, though, Michael, is that because of the cost cap, they can't actually spend it on performance, whereas previously they could. And I think this is this makes all the difference. But fundamentally, what happens now is that Ferrari get 5% of the total prize pot, which is about, it will work out in their case at a, between 50 and 60 million. But crucially, as I say, they cannot use that for performance. So they write it back to profits. Um, and I think that's well, the key difference. Well, let's uh, let's stay with that prize pot now, because exactly how much is that under the terms of the new Concord Agreement and how is the money generated? OK, so first of all, let's run through the generation and then we'll run about the size of the pot. And I'll have to also address certain uh, fiscal regulations here, which make it very difficult for us to give exact numbers and because fundamentally our sources are blocked, legally bound not to talk about it. So what I've had to do is try and construct it based on comments made here, remarks made there, etc., and also analysis of the, um, the Liberty Media financial statements. But fundamentally, how's the money generated? Well, there are basically four main revenue streams. The first one is media rights or broadcast rights. The second one is race promotion fees. The third one is what they call sponsorship. I prefer to call it bridge and board stuffs. In other words, a signage you see around the circuit, title sponsorship, whatever. And the fourth one is other, which is merchandising, licensing, um, a bit of hospitality, high-end hospitality like the Paddock Club, etc. But those are fundamentally the four major revenue streams. Now, if we have a look at the breakdown of these, um, a race promotion makes up about 31% of Liberty's entire income. Just allow me to state here, when I talk about Liberty and Formula One, Liberty Media is the commercial rights holder of Formula One. They are obviously trading as Formula One, are known as Formula One. So it's a bit confusing because you have Formula One, the company or the entity, and you have Formula One, the sport. But bear with me, Liberty Media fundamentally derives about 31% of its total turnover from race promotion fees. It gets about 40% from media rights, in other words, broadcast both radio and television. It gets 16% from what I call bridge and board stuff, and then it gets about 13% from other, which is a merchandise, merchandising, licensing, etc. In this uh, financial year, in other words, the full 2022 season, I estimate that this will add up to around about $2.1, $2.2 billion in total.
So when the te- when do the teams receive this money? Is this just a is this a one off payment at the end of the year, or do they receive it in certain increments? And how is my it divided up? My uh, understanding, Michael, my understanding of this is that they are paid quarterly. It used to be paid in ten blocks, uh, ten monthly payments, over, spread over the twelve months. Uh, but I understand that they've simplified this now and that it's p- paid quarterly. And the reason is very simple for that. Liberty, as uh, a NASDAQ-listed company, has to report on a quarterly basis. So I believe that that is probably the reason for the change. But either way, it makes no difference. The amount of money they receive is about the same anyway. It just means that instead of getting it sort of March, April, May, they now get it at the at the, sometime in May once Liberty has... has um, announce their their first quarter payments and so on and so forth for the rest of the year. You talked earlier about how uh, the previous structure was quite inequitable. Uh, have they, have, have Liberty Media, have they narrowed the gap between the, the top and the bottom now in terms of the money that the, the teams receive? Well, again, Michael, this is purely of what I've been able to pick up, but I can talk with a fair amount of knowledge about the previous payment structure because I actually managed to get hold of a copy of that. And basically what happened there was that the team that placed first got 20% of the pot and the team that placed last got 4% of the pot. Um, what they have done, I believe, is close that down. So we're looking at a figure of about 14 or 15% at the top end and 6 or 7% at the bottom end. So it has actually closed down a fair amount, which means that the, the top place team gets less the bottom place teams get a bit more than they did before so Dieter what is the the total size of the prize pot that we know at the moment and how is that money distributed between the 10 teams well Michael you say what do we know about the prize pot as I said um, we don't know anything for sure but certainly we, we've been trying to understand what it is and I estimate the the prize pot this year to be between 1.3 and 1.4 billion dollars uh, um, in other words, if we take the figure that I spoke about earlier on of about 2.1, 2.0 billion turnover, uh, the difference gets written down to liberty expenses, uh, you know, getting the show on the road, the television coverage, etc. Uh, some of the freight they pay for the teams, they, they also get some, some um, airline tickets for flyaway races, etc. So we're talking about 800 million-ish which is expenses and liberties profit, leaving about 1.3, 1.4 billion. Now, my understanding is that about uh, 20, 25% of that goes into a separate bonus pot, which I will address shortly, leaving about a billion to be distributed amongst the 10 teams without bonuses. And as I'd said earlier on, we're looking at that they closed it down from 20% of the top end and 4% at the bottom end to something like 14, 15% for the top end and 6, 7% at the bottom. Um, fundamentally, uh, so what, what I'm saying is that if you were the, the championship team, you would get 14 or 15% of that, which would be around about 150 million, and you'd get about 60 million at the bottom end. Um, and that then is distributed fairly evenly between there, which means that you're talking between 8 and 10 million difference per championship placing, which, of course, is the crucial thing. So if Alpine finish ahead of McLaren, they would then get about 8 or 9 million more than McLaren. 
and that's that's the best that I've been able to construct from this because of all this this um, opaqueness surrounding the matter because of of Liberty being a listed company, and of course one has to be very careful and very responsible when talking these sort of numbers, and I've certainly been trying to do that. And you mentioned those bonuses briefly earlier on. What exactly are they, and how, how does one of the teams get their hands on uh, the bonus money? All right, so let's just look at what it was, and let's look at what it has become. Back um, under the old Concord Agreement, you had your five chosen teams, and they got paid a combination of long-standing team, which applied to Ferrari, and CCB, which was championship constructor bonuses. Um, now, those have fallen away completely. In its place is a matrix whereby um, a team that has won a constructors championship gets a small bonus, and this, uh, and also a team that's won a multiple championship gets a bigger bonus, but only a one-off. So whether you win one, if you win one championship, you get X. If you win two or more, you get Y. But it's not as though you get any more if you win four or five championships. So it's one or or more so to speak. And then there is also a point structure of 3-2-1 for first, second, and third in the Constructors' Championship. And this first, second, and third fundamentally means that um, they get these these points. These are calculated over a 10-year period. So you have a 10-year rolling matrix. So you have 60 points. And of this 20 or 25% price structure, if you have amassed 30 points, you would then get half of that. And if you've amassed 10 points out of the 60, you'd get 16%. But again, these are rough estimates to try and give our readers and listeners an understanding of where we're at. Uh, Certainly, I wouldn't go out betting on these figures because, again, as I said, I've had to construct them. It has been very difficult, and there is a lot of estimation in this. It's analysis rather than straightforward fact. And I suppose all of this is uh, contributing to why quite a lot of the teams have been against the idea of an 11th team coming into Formula One that would then dilute the prize purse uh, that would be distributed among the teams because it would be between 11 rather than the 10 teams we have now. Absolutely. And I think uh, the, 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 the Ferrari surrounding the Andretti entry provides a perfect example of this, Michael. And that is that fundamentally what we have is um, we used to have Ten, uh, only 10 teams earned prize money. Whether there were 12 or 13 teams, didn't matter. Only the top 10 in the Constructors' Championship earned the prize money. Now, what you have under the new Concord Agreement is that I believe all teams earn money. Uh, so if you had 13 teams, for example, this pot would be divided by 13. Of course, on a, on a staggered basis, a tiered basis, but still 13 teams as opposed to 10 that, of course, dilutes the prize fund. Therefore, they have uh, uh, introduced what is called an anti-dilution fund, which amounts to $200 million, which a team pays once off if it enters a championship. In other words, it becomes the 11th or 12th or 13th team. Um, and this $200 million is then divided amongst the existing teams, be that 10, or if this was a particular 12th team, then that would be divided by the 11 teams ahead of this 12th team, etc. 
Now, that is, um, of course, 200 million divided by an average of 10 at the moment gives you 20 million. As I pointed out earlier on, the difference between a championship placing is about 10 or 12 million, and that is the amount that it would reduce by. If we're talking a pot of about a billion divided by 10, it gives you 100 million on average divided by 11, it gives you 90 million on average. So the difference is about 10 million if an 11th team were to come in. Yet the 200 million is just a one-off payment of 20 million per team. Therefore, after two years, uh, they, they, they would lose the benefit of this anti-dilution payment. And therefore, they are steadfastly against an 11th team unless uh, this particular team could contribute substantially to the prize fund. In other words, if it was a major team, like, for example, an Audi or a Porsche coming in new, uh, they may contribute to the prize fund, and therefore all the teams would benefit. Well, Andretti was talking about coming in for 2026, and that's the same year that we're due to have a new Concord agreement where there could be a new prize money structure that would, uh, that, that would suit 11 teams rather than 10. Could, could, you see, uh, could you see any possibility of the, of the prize fund increasing for 2026 that would make it easier for an 11th team to come in? Uh, Michael, I don't really see the prize fund increasing, uh, certainly not on a percentage basis. If anything, I see it decreasing because let's not forget the cost cap makes it possible for teams to operate a lot cheaper than they did before. And this in turn makes it possible for Liberty to extract more in terms of profit than they would have under the old Concord Agreement without endangering the future of any of these teams. So, if anything, I can see the price fund decreasing as we go forward uh, because the teams are spending less and less on an annual basis due to cost caps. What I can, however, see is that uh, there could, in fact, be some form of directive uh, uh, from the EU about whether or not this anti-dilution fee is actually legal or not. Um, and I'm, I'm hearing rumblings that there are concerns that it may not be legal, and therefore I think uh, Liberty may be looking at, at, at cleaning things up, so to speak. Um, I mean, I have had, had discussions with people in the know about this, and some of them are saying, oh, no, no, it's all legal, and others are saying, mm, it could be marginally legal. It would take an EU investigation to decide this. Whether a team would like to enter Formula One off the back of an EU investigation, I doubt. I mean, it's certainly not the way of building up goodwill. Accordingly, I think we'd have to wait and see what is discussed with the new Concord Agreement. Let's not forget that we're effectively talking three years hence. Well, we know that the uh, 2022 Drivers' and Constructors' Championships have both been sewn up, but there's still plenty for the teams to play for as they seek to maximise that all-important prize money by finishing as high up the constructors' table as they possibly can. But Dieter, as ever, thank you very much for your insight, and we'll be hearing from you from the paddock one final time in 2022 after the race in Abu Dhabi. Absolutely. Really looking forward to this finale. And as we said, it will be absolutely crucial for every team to put out all stops to try and earn as much money as possible. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at Racing Lines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 race weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. Apologies for the sound quality, but thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with you after the race in Abu Dhabi.